If you have book of praise, please follow with me to Lord's Day 3. Here is a, there's a title there at the first part, Our Sin and Misery, in a, above Lord's Day 2. Uh, before we get into that, we have to remember that the Lord's Day is trying to describe where our sin and misery come from. And that is the, the topic, the lesson that Lord's Day 3 tries to teach us. So let me just read uh, all those three questions. Question answer six, Lord's Day 3. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, hurtly love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness, to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in John Calvin's first book of Institute of Christian Religion, Calvin talks about the knowledge of God. He said, he said something very interesting. He said, knowing God is deeply connected with knowing man. In other words, if you know yourself, then you know God. One type of knowledge leads to the other knowledge through revealing our darkness by the Scripture. And you may wonder, that what does it really mean by that? Well, it's like a staring at the sun. Imagine then on a bright afternoon in August that you're standing outside facing the sun and you see the sunlight coming down to all the creatures giving a great amount of energy and it's quite amazing to see how the sun keeps burning yet never burns out itself. However, when you stare right at the sun, you instantly realize how fragile you are. Your eyes cannot bear the sunlight. You cannot stare right at the sun even for a few seconds. Your weakness teaches you how strong the sun is. And it is the same with the knowing God. We know that our God is a powerful and infinite 
And we, when we exposed to His glory, when we, when, we, when we discovered how fragile we are, we know God is very powerful and He is infinite. We see that we are living in the darkness. God is light. We see that we are ignorant. God has infinite wisdom. And we know this by reading the Bible. The law of God, the Bible says, is like the light. Our sin, our sins are like the dust being exposed to the light. Or let's say a bachelor who stays in his confined room, he has no idea how much piles of dust, coffee stains, and biscuit crumbs there are in his room. But when he opens the curtain, when the light enters through the window, all the coffee stains, biscuit crumbs, and thick layer of dust will appear in his sight. Then the bachelor realizes the seriousness of the situation, saying, was I living in this kind of nasty room? In the same way, the law of God helps us to, helps us to understand our miserable condition. The catechism begins, um, begins with a similar way. The question answered to uh, start with the question, what do you need to know in order to live and die in this joy of discomfort? The answer follows. First, we have to know how great are my sin and misery are. Then it triggers another question. How do we know our sin and misery? Well, how, how does the bachelor discover the big pile of dust in his room? Well, it can be known by introducing light. And that's where question answer three, four, and five comes up. The light here, as you know, is the law of God. Then the bachelor tries to clean his room. The coffee stains never goes away. Dust keeps piling despite of his constant effort. He cannot help but ask this question. Where did all this come from? And I preach God's word faithfully summarized by the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, with the following theme and points. The theme is, God teaches us where our sin and misery come from. First point, our sin and misery, they are not from the Creator. Second, they are from our first parents. Third, they are very severe. So the first point, our sin and misery are not from the Creator. It is very interesting uh, to observe how our first parents, Adam and Eve, reacted to God when they first committed a sin. And if you have a Bible, please pay attention to Genesis 3, verse 12. There it says, Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. Look carefully. Look how 
Adam addresses his wife, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Indeed, it was, it was, he was right. It was the woman who gave the, him the fruit. But the way that Adam was saying, speaking, was not polite at all. It was not just a mere statement. But it was more like an accusation. Here, Adam was not only accusing the woman, but he was accusing God. It is woman whom you gave to be with me. In another word, Adam is saying, Lord, this is not my fault. God, you are actually the source of evil. If you had not given this woman to me, this horrible thing wouldn't happen and I wouldn't feel any guilt. Let's imagine that you have a son-in-law. Some of you do have son-in-laws, and Lord's willing, uh, hopefully some of you will have son-in-laws in the future. And let's imagine that your son-in-law comes to you, and he says, Sir, the daughter that you gave to be with me snores every night. Or he says, Sir, the daughter that you let me marry doesn't know how to make a Dutch soup. Well, if your, son, if your son-in-law speaks in that way, would you not be offended? Of course. How could you not possibly offend it? Would you not call him hypocrite, remembering all the sweet things he said to earn your daughter? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The earthly father feels so terrible about it. It's probably the same with God. In Genesis chapter 2, if you remember, look how Adam admires the beautiful work of God's creation. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Here, Adam's confession, he recognized the wonderful work of God with full appreciation. But just a few verses later, Adam suddenly changed, changed his attitude and he started to accuse God. Isn't this a serious irony, brothers and sisters? The man who praised God for woman in chapter 2 now starts to make a false accusation in chapter 3. Of course, this is absurd. This is repaying good with evil. And do you remember that the creation of woman was for the sake of men? God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. God created everything, everything, very good and beneficial to man. But look what the man and woman is doing here. They're blaming the creation for their wrong doings. The catechism is very clear on this matter. Catechism teaches us that God created all things good. Of course, this includes man, woman, Blaming brothers and sisters means that you're blaming God who created them. And, and that is also what the Catechism captures in Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6. Did God 
then create men so wicked and perverse? No. No, look what, how the Adam describes his wife. The creation was extremely good. The, rep, the repetition of the word God so that it was good confirms that the creation was very good. The, good. the word good appears seven times in chapter 1. Of course, this goodness includes the snakes too. It is unreasonable to think that snakes alone are evil while every other creature were created very good. Jesus Christ once taught us, be wise as a snake. Matthew 10 verse 16. If the snake had an evil nature, why would Jesus Christ teach us to be like snake? All things were created very good. And this, of course, applies to everything, including our relationship with God. There was a strong bond of trust. Man had nothing to hide from God and from his wife. And that's why they were not shamed of being naked. Moreover, God created Adam according to his image, after his likeness. Genesis 1, verse 26, when the triune God decided to make Adam in his image, he gave Adam a special task, that is to have dominion over other creatures. In other words, stewardship was given. Of course, it was a great privilege for, for Adam to be placed above all other creatures. Yet it was his obligation to take a good care of other creatures as well. Being steward does not mean that he can do whatever he wishes to do. Being steward means taking a good care of other things within the premises of God's law. And steward, of course, he should honor the one who has given the rights. Being steward does not mean that you may torture any other animals that you want. Being steward involves with honor and respect. And just look what Adam did in, to God in Genesis chapter 3. Adam is trying to avoid a blame by pointing his finger to his wife. This behavior, of course, is not helpful in building a good relationship with his wife. But the woman is doing the same thing here. She's blaming the snake. Of course, that's not a responsive behavior. And, but we shouldn't throw stones to Adam as if they are the only reprehensible ones. Actually, we are just like them. Before we blame anybody else, we should ask a question. Do we act like image bearer of God to our neighbors? Do we recognize others as image bearer of God? Do we act responsibly? In reality, we, we don't. We rather tend to blame others just like Adam and Eve did. I'm afraid as of being a seminary student, I feel the same temptations every day. When there happens to be heavy critics on my sermons, 
my sinful nature tends to blame on someone else. Sometimes I would, I would love to blame on commentaries or the professors, but we as a sinful human being always tend to point our fingers at anybody else while we love to keep all the credits to ourselves. We always are good at looking for a, the speck in the eyes of the others, and we always fail to see huge log in our eyes. It is very sad that we are not able to find anybody who lives like a perfect image bearer of God. But if you really want to know that what it is like to be a true image bearer of God, then you can find some clues by looking at the scripture. The clue is in Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. In Colossians 1.15, it says that He is the image of invisible God, the firstborn of the creation. Both passages are talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect image bearer of God is Jesus Christ. He was the perfect steward. And let me give you the example why. When Jesus was on the cross, while he was in excruciating pain, he didn't blame others, but instead he prayed for his enemies, even. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they, not, they know not what they do. And we see that there's a huge contrast between Adam and Jesus Christ. Adam, he accepted woman his joy. But when the trouble arrived, he turned away and complained about her. Jesus, Jesus Christ, he had all the rights to complain because he was innocent. But Jesus did not complain. Instead, he prayed for them. He found strength by saying, not by my will, but your will. When Adam faced the troubles, he didn't care about his wife. But when Jesus faced the tribulations, he endured all sufferings for his bride, his church, for you and me. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the true image of God, the true responsibility as God's steward. During his earthly ministry, Jesus always, he always asked for Father's will, not his will. Jesus Christ, our chief priest, although he was given of all the powers of the heaven and all the earth, he humbled himself to the point of death so that we may live in him in eternal blessedness. We also need to remember that all things were created through Jesus Christ. Belgic Confession Article 10 teaches us to follow as follows. God made the world by his Son, likewise, that God created all things by Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, if there is a someone saying that the sin is from the creation, then it also means that Jesus Christ is the source of sin. There are only two options: whether the sin is from our Creator, or it came. From somewhere else, and this leads to the second point: our sin and misery are from our first parents. Catechism teaches us that man's depraved nature is from the fall and disobedience of our first parents. And please notice the word "man's depraved nature." The world that God has created. In、the first place was very, very beautiful. There was no sin, but because of one disobedience of our first parents, their nature became so corrupt. Well, what did they do that made themselves so corrupt? We know the famous story about eating the fruits that they were not supposed to eat. And catechism calls this as an act of disobedience. And I heard some people saying that it was not fair for them to have such a heavy punishment, since it was their their action was a part of their instinct. What does that mean? What they are saying is, the man and woman just became hungry, and they just had a simple bite. But this theory is nonsense, since God already gave them other fruits and plants for food. It was not a matter of instinct; it was rather a matter of a disobedience, as the Catechism teaches us. The fact is that our first parents' disobedience is the cause of our misery. They wanted to be like God; their arrogance led them. To the destruction. Of course, this sin had an immediate effect, and the result was very crucial. The trust between God and man was broken. Man, woman, they realized that they were naked. This, of course, still has impact on us as well. There became barriers between relationships. Our relationship with God became distant. More and more walls created among people. People keep the secrets even from their spouse. Other creatures, they received immediate impact as well. Disease was introduced. Death came not only to us but to other creatures as well. Thorns, they began to come out, and they made man's labor more difficult. Woman had to go through labor to bring birth. All the creatures, which were under man's control, received great, great stress. Mankind also lost so many things just by one disobedience. Since the fall, it was very, it is very hard to find the image of God within us. But we can actually. Find something that is a little bit, just tiny little bit remnants left in us. John Calvin calls this as a gift or remnants, and of course, it is undeniable that our image of God is totally corrupted 
and deeply broken by our sin, yet the benefits as being an image of God still remains tiny, tiny a bit. For instance, we are far more intelligent than monkeys, dolphins, and cows. We do things that monkeys and dolphins are not capable of. Mankind expanded their wings over various areas of studies such as the science, physics, law, art, music, organ. With this tiny remnants of gifts, mankind has established the phenomenal things. Yet man's total depravity blocked himself from glorifying God. These remnants, remnants became nothing more than a memory or evidence that man was once created in God's image. If we could establish this, this much with the tiny bit of remnants, imagine how much more we could have established if our first parents simply obeyed. All those gifts will testify against us for not recognizing God as our creator. Some people may think that this is too, too much, this is way too cruel to take away all our, our excellent gifts just by one disobedience. So there are some people out there feel really angry about God for not doing anything when Adam took his first bite. They said, well, God could have stopped the first parents from, from sinning against him with infinite knowledge. He could have prevented them from eating the fruit in the first place. Could he not? But, beloved ones, don't be distracted by this kind of argument. Our catechism answers this question wisely in Lord's Day 4. It says, But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Remember that God created us good. He created us in His image. It is our first parents' deliberate decision to fall. Deliberate. Their arrogance led them to fall. It was they who chose not to be a steward of God. John Calvin he gives us a good illustration to help us to understand this matter. Again, imagine that there is a dead cow lying on the parking lot. It shouldn't happen. Hope that doesn't happen. And there is a sun shining on the dead cow. You know what's going to happen. It's going to be a smell. And you can smell that something is rotting. It's not good. It seems like the more the dead cow being exposed to sunlight, the more smell that you are going to get. But here's the point. 
it would be really ridiculous to blame the sun for the unpleasant smell. Because sun is very indispensable for life. If only the cow were still alive, the cow would be, who knows, would be enjoying the sunlight, beautiful weather. Who knows, he would even, even photosynthesize. The sun was there even before the cow was born. The smell is not coming from the sun, but from the dead cow. And it is the same with God. You, just like you don't blame the sun for the unpleasant smell, you do, not, you do not blame God for his sin and misery. We shouldn't forget that God's faithfulness to the covenant, he has been there from eternity. He was, and he's still providing us with all that we need. And God has been there with us even before the sun. It's not fair to ask how come God didn't stop our first parents from eating the fruit because God already was very gracious with them. The problem lies on our side, not God's. And this leads to the last point. Our sin and misery are very severe. Our, the catechism says, asks another question, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. We are so corrupt that we are not able to do any good. According to Romans, we are just like that dead cow. We are dead. We are useless. Our sinful state is so serious that there's nothing good good within us. We are not able to do any good unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Notice the word, the Spirit of God. Our catechism has a heavy emphasis on man's total depravity. Our sin is so so great that unless God intervenes, there is no hope. We need a new beginning. We need a new birth. And we see this doctrine well summarized in the Gospel of John, especially John 3. We find the amazing truth revealed by our Lord Jesus Christ while he was talking with Nicodemus. Jesus said, Unless the one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus added that you must be born again. Nicodemus asked a question, how, how can these things be? How can a man be born again? Well, perhaps we can ask, ask a similar question, how can a man be regenerated? How can we be out of this misery? Jesus answers in verse 13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. He continues in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does that mean? 
Again, we are so corrupt that we are not, we are not able to do anything. We need someone else to sacrifice himself for us. That's how serious our sin and misery are. But thanks to the Jesus Christ, through his one sacrifice, as he was being lifted up by, by, uh, by God, just like uh, the serpent was lifted up by Moses, Jesus is bringing us home by the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, remember, just remember that our sin and misery began because, because Adam didn't listen in the first place. Now you're here because of the Holy Spirit. Now you're here because you're being sanctified. The same Holy Spirit is calling us to obedience. And I, li- I would like to conclude this sermon by, with the Christ command, which is repeated throughout the seven churches in Revelation. He said, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.